Hey, it's Thomas Frank. I've just got a quick note for you before we get into the show. If you've been enjoying the Inforium or my videos over on YouTube, then you, my friend, should get Nebula. On Nebula, you get ad-free versions of both this podcast and my videos, along with exclusive stuff like extended versions of those videos. And it's not just our stuff that you're going to get. Dozens of other creators are on Nebula, including Ali Abdal, Wendover Productions, Braincraft, Tier Zoo, and lots more. Nebula gives us a chance to experiment, and since everything's ad-free, it's also the best way for you to get our content. Head over to theinforium.com slash nebula to sign up now. You're listening to the College Info Geek Podcast, where it's all about learning more, paying off your student debt, landing your dream job, and being awesome at college. Now, here's your host, Thomas Frank. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to the College Info Geek Podcast. I'm Thomas Frank, and this week I'm talking to my friend James Ranson, who is a location-independent freelance editor. So in this episode, we're going to be talking about how to edit big papers that you're writing for classes. And also he's going to give me a little bit of an overview of the location independent lifestyle and what it's like to actually live without a permanent home base. So if you've ever been curious about how that works out and how to do it on a very, very small budget, this episode is going to be for you. And also if you're looking for those editing tips and ways to tighten up those research papers and essays you have to write, James has some awesome Awesome tips. He was an English major, got his master's degree in English. So uh, it's going to be a good episode. But first, if you've got questions about college, we have a monthly Q&A episode coming up next week. So if you want to get those questions answered on the air with uh, my friend Martin, my girlfriend Anna, and me, then send them over to thomas at collegeinfogeek.com. We'll get those questions answered on the show. Also, if you have not checked out the YouTube channel yet, last week I made a video on active reading strategies, how you can pull information out of the textbooks that you have to read in less time. So if you want to get those videos, just head over to collegeinfogeek.com slash videos and you can subscribe to the YouTube channel over there. You can also subscribe to the podcast to make sure you get every single episode as it comes out on Mondays. You can do that at the show notes, which you can find at sigpodcast.com. Dot com, that's CIGpodcast.com. You'll find the cool little podcast player on that page, but you'll also find the episode 41 link where you can click and find the links to anything we mentioned in this episode, the summary, and links to subscribe. So that is all we have. So for this episode, I kind of just led right into the conversation. There's not much of an intro, so let's get that started now. You know, I can kind of tell. It sounds like a little bit like an auditorium. It, it's a small one, yeah. <laughs> all right, you're the performer here. Uh, I will be the audience then. <laughs> All right. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, so I, I want a question before we get started. Like, and yeah. I think you may have told me this, but did you go to college? Yeah. Okay, cool. So yeah, I went to, I went to college and I went to graduate school. I'm actually, I'm wearing my Carnegie Mellon shirt where I went to graduate are. school. All right. <laughs> we Well, okay. I think I'll start in with that and yeah, uh, go ahead. get your story from there going into what you're doing now, which Great. has led you to this point. Uh, and then we'll talk about writing and stuff. You said you said you were a writer before you're an editor, right? Mm-hmm. I've been. I mean, I've I've been some kind of writer since high school. Um, okay. I initially, like when I was a kid, I read so much I wanted to be an author, so that was a thing for a while. And then I got into you know you do a lot of academic writing when you're in in school. Or you can at any rate. I certainly did. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I and you know I, I took you know all the the honors English classes and all of that. And um, I, ha- I was fortunate to have some very very good English teachers uh, who really instilled in me a love of the you know the love of the written word and a love of figuring out you know how to write about it. So when I went to college, I mean I studied music because I loved to sing and I was thinking about a career as a performer, but when that didn't really follow through, I ended up switching over to or switching back, I guess, to to English and and doing a lot more with the writing and and stuff like that. Uh I, I actually my I, I did five years in undergrad. So the the fifth year I presented a paper at a national English conference. And I think there were something like 250 people presenting at that conference. There were four undergrads and I was one really? of them. And that was, it was, it was a really cool experience because I mean, I was like, 
a little bit, but also, um, (laughs) but you know, I got to, I was on a panel with like uh, a doctoral student and like the head, the chair of a department of a university in Ontario. And I was like, I'm this, you know, 23 year old, like kid who wrote a paper about Wordsworth. I'm like, okay, this is interesting, Yeah, (laughs) but it was really fun. And I mean, I decided at that point that I didn't really want to go into academia, that I didn't want to spend the rest of my, my life writing that kind of paper. But I've had this huge appreciation for for literature and for words and for writing and for using the right words and all of that, you know, before and since then. I went to graduate school for arts management and decided, you know, or or gravitated towards writing grants. So uh, because that was, you know, writing in that context where you're you're basically writing a proposal to to get funding for a particular project and then you know, and, and then when they give you that money, you have to write a report on, you know, this is what we did with it. And this is the results that we got. So I did that for a couple of years. Hmm. And then, you know, the, the job that I took after graduate school as a, as a full-time grant writer for a performing arts organization didn't, um, didn't end up working out, didn't end up being the fit that I thought it was going to be. And that was okay. You know, those things happen. And then I, I, basically had a few months where I was kind of figuring out what I was going to do. And through some of my contacts in the location independence, uh, you know, run your own business kind of entrepreneurial world, I started doing some freelance writing and like uh, search engine optimization content and blog posts and article creation and all sorts of stuff like that. And that led me to, you know, progressively more lucrative clients and, and also eventually into doing some editing as well. Cool. And I'm really transitioning into doing almost all editing now. Interesting. So, so I was going to do like a form of intro, but I think like we've kind of sort of gotten into it already. So, uh, like enough. a little behind the scenes for listeners, I'm just going to like fade into that whole thing we just okay, said. That was a good that's intro. Fine. No problem. Yeah. So you said you went, you did your undergrad at uh, Carnegie Watermelon. <laughs> <laughs> God, I haven't heard that joke in a while. <laughs> well, was that, was uh, that undergrad actually, or was that grad school? That was grad school. Okay. Um, my undergrad, I went to a very, very small school. It's called Principia College. It's in southern Illinois, about an hour from St. Louis, Missouri. Are you sure it's not Principia? Uh, if we were actually speaking Latin, it would be. But, uh, we're, we're oh, is that what it is? It's, it was, so is, is that the pronunciation, though? Is it Latin? That mm-hmm. like Okay. Yeah. That, I kept in, wondering. In, in Latin, the C was pronounced as a hard C. It was all it was all uh, the K sound. So it would be Principia um, if we were in you know ancient Rome. That, okay, I got gotcha. you because um, I've heard people call like Isaac Newton's Principia Mathematica, and mm-hmm. I'm like, wouldn't it be Principia? But I suppose that makes sense if he written it uh, wrote it in Latin or something, or maybe an mm-hmm. older variant in yeah. English. So the the the. You, you notice how English kind of I, I, the expression I, I heard at one point. I love this is um, English is uh, uh, the language that that grabs other languages, knocks them over the head, drags them down a dark alley, and rifles through their pockets for spare vocabulary and pronunciation. Um, <laughs> so basically, the development of English over the last several you know thousand years, give or take, has incorporated a lot of things from a lot of different languages, but it's also bastardized them a bit. So what was always a hard C in Latin is like, well, sometimes it's a hard C and sometimes it's not. And there's no real hard and fast rule about it. So we anymore. really just we just took the C and we were like, sometimes we're going to make it soft. Eh. Yeah, pretty much. Basically. OK. Yeah. <laughs> and so that's what makes English a difficult language to learn if you didn't grow up with it. Right. Oh, yeah. Because there's there's no real integral system of language. I mean, studying Latin helps. I actually had two years of Latin in middle school and, you know, that helps with almost any language because the rules of Latin grammar and some of the pronunciation and some of the other things, like first they're the root of like a lot of the romance languages, Spanish, French, Italian, and so forth. But also a lot of those rules sort of migrated into other languages. You can be studying, as you study English, you, um, the idea, for example, that verbs and subjects have to agree or that uh, some things are a masculine gender or a female or feminine gender um, and, and the pronouns that you use with them are adjusted accordingly. Those concepts came from Latin. Okay. Interesting. So, uh, so you mentioned that you had a really good high school English teacher. So maybe we can start there sure. because I, it reminded me like I had a fantastic high school English teacher and uh, she put us through boot camp. Let me tell you. 
Like it was it was honors English, but you know, being the cocky high school student who's just like, oh, honors classes are gonna be cakewalk, you know, maybe a little bit harder <laughs> than the regular classes. I walk into honors English one of the first day, and she says, "Class, you have six essays due by the end of this week." And like, wow! <laughs> oh a, my, oh, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I think they, were, they all had to be like maybe a page and a half or two pages. So you know, now just think, oh, twelve pages of writing in a week. Uh, you know, that sounds like a vacation, <laughs> but right. back in, what was it? I think it was 10th grade. Um, th- we had never done that before mm-hmm. and she was a stickler for commas and semicolon placement and all that kind of stuff. So now when I read those oatmeal comics, uh, comics about the semicolon, I'm just like, yeah, oh, I, I already this. knew that stuff. Yep, exactly. <laughs> so was, was I love, your, I love uh, the one about, I love the one about the a lot. <laughs> yes. Oh, that, that one's not oatmeal. That one's hyperbole and a half. Oh, you're right. You're right. I confuse yep. those sometimes. Yeah, same, she, same same kind of concept though. She's also hilarious. I I love her comic, and I probably should get her book at some point because yeah, I've got definitely. the oatmeal book back there, at least the first one. So, uh, was your high school English teacher that much of like a drill instructor? Uh, well, interestingly, so the way this was set up, I did three years, eighth, ninth, and tenth grade, at a very very prestigious and this is not me dropping a name but it just it it was one of the best boys schools in the region Mm. and it was it was you know academically it deserved that reputation it would it (laughs) so it was tough you know it was very tough so in eighth grade i pretty much learned like everything you could possibly know about grammar down to like memorizing all like 32 prepositions and what they were and like how to use them and like (laughs) all sorts of things like that. And then, you know, that's, we were tested on all of those things to make sure that we, excuse me, to make sure that we knew them and how to use them and all of that. Like I learned how to diagram sentences. I mean, nobody diagrams sentences anymore, but that was something we were like rigorously tested on. So that that's the, <laughs> the exercise where you like write the sentence straight and then you have like diagonally going down yep. words. I never even understood what that meant. Like I, I've looked at it and it looks cool, but I don't know what it means. Well, it, it, it's basically, how how, how is the best way to explain this? It it's basically taking speech and putting it into or, or writing and putting it into a visual format so you know how it fits together. Mm. Uh, a little bit like a puzzle, so you know, for example, you know the the base thing, you know, the subject and the verb and and you know who is doing what. But then also, if you have an adjective, you know what the adjective is modifying. And if you have a phrase uh, or another clause that goes into it, you know exactly by the direction of the line that you draw, you know, what that clause modifies or where it follows or anything like that. And it's, it's one of those things that like when you understand how to do it and, and, and how it works, it makes your writing and your understanding of words a lot easier but you kind of have to learn everything about it first. And then you, okay. you sort of look back and you're like, oh, that's what that was for kind of thing. So <sighs> it almost sounds like, you know, like math operations where it's like, this is what this does to this part of the equation. Well, this is what uh, this type of word will do to this other type of word and uh, modify its the meaning of the sentence and that kind of thing. A little bit. Yeah, I could I could see that parallel. OK, so so eighth grade was learning a lot of these principles and then. Ninth grade was uh, like how to take all of them and not just grammar, also, you know, comprehension and working with like the stories that we're reading and and all of that. And then learning how to write significant essays about them. And I actually in my English class, uh, I got the lowest grade of the entire class on my first essay. <laughs> really? Yeah. No, I, I, I you know, we, we grade out of 100 at that point. And I think most people were like, oh, you know, because you compare all of your grades, of course. <laughs> and, um, so I was, you know, Papers down. Like, oh, you know, I got, yeah, exactly. It's like, I got a, I got an 87, I got a 91, I got whatever. And I was like, and I, I turned over my paper and it was like a 68. And I was like, what? This doesn't make any sense. I'm a writer. I'm supposed to be good at this, right? (laughs) And and it was – that was really hard for me. But it also kind of, uh, you know, galvanized me to, like, really learn what it was to write a really good paper and to take a story and find something really good to write about it and not just write a whole bunch of plot summary, which is what I had done. Yeah. And so by the time I got into partway into 10th grade, and this was where I had the really, really good teacher I was telling you about. Um, I mean, they were all good, but this one was one I particularly remember. Uh, His name was Mr. Moxley. And he, he loved words. He just loved 
words and you could just tell. And I felt there's like, you know, a little bit of a kindred spiritness in that because I loved words too. And I was starting to realize, you know, how I could, how I could use that and how I could work with that. And so by that point, you know, the papers that I could write for, that I wrote for him were some of the best papers I've probably ever written. And, um, there was actually one point when I knew, you know, the different things in grammar so well that like I did very badly on a grammar test because I didn't want to try. And he sort of looked at me as like, this is not the usual work I get from you. And I'm like, no. Mm. And he's like, okay. And just let it go. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, but but the, the point of this is that I had, I had, I had put in the work to really understand it. And I had, begun to realize just how much I loved working with words mm. um, through that. And, you know, and, and I got, you know, I wrote most of the things that we talked about in his class were American literature. So, I mean, we talked about a lot of the, a lot of the different poets that were in that, in that, uh, that wrote throughout the last sort of 300 years. And we, I wrote a bunch of papers on, or I wrote a paper on, on Huckleberry Finn and the Glass Menagerie and, um, the last of the Mohicans and, you know, a whole bunch of different books that I, that I really liked. So cool. that, was, that was also helpful. Yeah. I had to do a lot of the same things in high school. We had a one class where it was very much reading based. Mm-hmm. And then the last class we got to write whatever we wanted to, which oh, nice. was awesome. <laughs> and my final essay of high school was like a 5,000 word in depth review of some super emo CD. that I liked. <laughs> <laughs> But I was really proud of it. I was, and I was like, oh, "This is going to be dumb because nobody's ever listened to this music." But turning it in, actually, I think I remember um, it was it was assigned, and I didn't want to do it. And I had written this essay for a website, like a like a review website, and I was like, oh. "Well, I'm just going to take that and make it my final project." Oh, all right, double Hours. dipping for the win for sure. <laughs> That's actually a pretty good tip. Like, so if you've already done work, and like you know, why not reuse it? Kind of oh thing. yeah. No, I, I did that. Actually that's come up a lot in my like freelance writing that I've done. Mm. If I'm writing on similar topics, uh, or if I'm writing, uh, I had a gig for about a month and a half or two months that was all on one topic and a number of the, um, the prompts were very, very similar. So I, we wrote pretty much the same material, probably half a dozen times, just phrasing everything differently. And that yeah. saved me a lot of time. <laughs> yeah. Also, Oh, for scholarships, I've done this. So every time I write an essay for a scholarship or a personal statement or something, I shove it into an Evernote notebook. Oh, and absolutely. So for the next scholarship, it's like write about yourself, you know, or what's your biggest weakness? I wrote about that before. There's no reason for me yeah. to redo, like reinvent the wheel. Uh, yeah, just take it. Absolutely. There's there's <laughs> yeah, what you said there. There's no reason. And this is actually a really good tip for for writing good papers. Um, and if you have material that you've already used you can reuse it. Mm-hmm. Just make sure it doesn't you know, sound exactly the same as it was before. I think that's the mistake that some, t- some people fall into. They're like, oh, I wrote this paper. I'm just going to like, write my name and a new date on it and hand it in again. You, you have to do yeah. a little more work than that. But you know, you, you have, if you have that sort of that, that material already, you can base what your new writing is going to be off of that and save yourself a lot of time. Yeah. Have you ever heard of a, like NIH, not invented here syndrome? <laughs> Where companies are like, well, you know, they already have Trello and Wonderlist out there, but we didn't invent our own to-do list, so let's take like six months to make our own because uh, mm-hmm. we need we need an internal one. But uh, you know, it's terrible this like debilitating f- f- like need that people some people have to have like invented everything from scratch every oh, time, yeah. and it, yeah, you know yeah. it's not it's not very productive. So no, it's not. you know if you if you have something that's going to fulfill the requirements. You can start with uh, that as a foundation and yep. it saves you a lot of time. Oh, absolutely. Just don't plagiarize. Don't plagiarize. Yeah. And yeah. You know, I think you have to think about like the audience. So if I wrote something for scholarship committee uh, X, mm-hmm. like scholarship committee Y is never going to see what I wrote for scholarship committee X most likely. That's very true. So I probably could just use word for word what I wrote for that, you know, but if it's being published somewhere publicly, then that's when you want to start rephrasing things, adding mm-hmm. new things, and building off of that base. Yeah, and then you know, as as, as John Green likes to say, context is everything. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, depend, think about your audience, think about your context, um, think about you know what sources you're using. Yeah, you know all of that. I've been watching a lot more of his stuff lately. 
Isn't it just, great? Yeah. Well, I've just been getting so into YouTube because I'm making videos now. So but, every yeah, day right. I'm studying videos. And obviously the Green Brothers are just uh, fantastic at what they do. So they are uh, definitely people that I study. So, yeah. uh, well, so I'll, I'll, I'll plug them for your for your readers and <laughs> listeners here. Just, you know, anything academic. They've got pretty much crash course everything at this point. You know, literature, history, biology, chemistry, psychology. Yeah. Like, how many how many channels doing, do they have? They have, vlog, they have Vlog Brothers. They have vlog Crash Brothers, Course. Crash Course. Uh, Sci Show, which is Hank's about science. Which is yeah. I haven't watched as much of that, but it's pretty good. Um, uh, Hank Games, where they play various video games and record it. I'm kind of addicted to watching John play FIFA. Um, they have their own Let's Play channel. Yeah, that's pretty. Funny. I did not know that existed. <laughs> of course they oh, do. Oh yeah, and and then they also do Mental Floss, uh, which is like a weekly list show that has a couple of spinoffs. Um, they have what like mental floss big question where they answer one big question a week and and mental floss misconceptions were like misconceptions that like things actually one of them was like things you learned in school that aren't true um yeah. you know stuff like that oh, so they've, they, got, they've uh, probably got a good half a dozen channels at this point and i think they uh be like sponsor or i guess mentor others like there's this one called how to adult and it's oh, just yeah. like oh, yeah, that's right. it's not it's not hank but i think he is like He's one of the producers. The producer or something, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, and actually, Hank, another thing Hank produces is um, Pemberley Digital, which okay. is basically like the modern video diary version of famous novels. They've oh, done cool. Pride and Prejudice. They've done Emma. They're doing Frankenstein now. They're, you know, stuff like that. Well, my favorite channel about famous novels is Thug Notes, so... You're, oh, that's right. <laughs> oh, I have seen a couple of those. That, those are those are good. Those are good. <laughs> uh, I love thug notes. All right. So, so you, right now you're an editor, right? You're a freelance editor. You kind of know where your path has led you. But when you started uh, undergrad, you started as an English major, right? I actually started as a music major and a theater oh, major. Okay, so yeah, so, so I, eventually... I briefly mentioned that. So I started wanting to be a you know I wanted to be a performer. I have a pretty good singing voice. I've been singing for about twenty years, and. Okay. Um, I, I was at that point, you know, really wanted people to applaud for me and, <laughs> and you know, be like, dude, this is James this is a really cool guy kind of thing. So I'm like, I'm going to, you know, do music and theater and get recognition. And that that lasted like two and a half years and and ended in a couple of breakdowns. It, it, it wasn't fun uh, because what I realized at that <laughs> point was like I like I mean, I what I liked about performing was the attention that I got for it. Mm. But I didn't like the work. I didn't like the, you know, going into a practice room by myself for like two or three hours a day and working on singing or, or acting monologues or anything like that. And, and you know, when I, I kind of realized that partway through and you have one of these moments where you're like, you've been telling yourself for so long, this is what you want to do. And then you realize that it isn't. And then you're like, oh, my God, what now? <laughs> <laughs> I like see you know, my life out in front of me like this, like desolate plane of not knowing what to do. And life is over. <laughs> exactly. And, and you know, and, and you, you go through this halfway through college. I feel like everybody has something like this, either like either just before college or in college or just after college, like somewhere oh, in that yeah. period. The, um, the quarter life crisis. Yeah, exactly. And I guess I, I had mine a little bit early, but that's fine. <laughs> I was, um, yeah, I sat in class and I was like, maybe I should be a construction engineer instead. <laughs> I'm like looking at the. <laughs> I decided not to because I was like, oh, that's money. But yeah, I think yeah, everyone yeah, yeah. has it, you know. Yeah, and then so what I what I realized as I sort of did a bunch of soul searching around that is you know going back to what I said before in and I learned as a sophomore English English student I love words. What I do in my free time is read, like constantly. So yes. why not go to a major that, yeah, I, I, yeah, I know. I, I can see behind you. Dude, that looks awesome. I want to get a closer look at that, I actually. I love my bookshelf. <laughs> nice. People who love to read, it's like, so, okay, here's my, you go to someone's house, right? Yep. What's the first thing you do? Uh, go look at their bookshelf? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's like, what I do. I, so what do I do? I go in, I take off my coat. I mean, like, no, I, <laughs> but no, if they have a bookshelf, I go and look at it. Yep. <laughs> Although I also see you have a Firefly poster and that is also epic. I do have a Firefly poster. I do. Which is sad because I haven't seen the entire show. I've seen probably 75% of it, but I need to finish right. it. Yeah, right. you're, you're just like, oh, his, his nerd cred has just gone down. Yeah, <laughs> just a, a little bit. <laughs> but at any rate, um, I, so I decided to switch over. You know, I, I, I finished out the music major because I'd done most of it at that point. And I, and I discovered that I still love to sing, like, in groups. So hmm. now I, when I sing, I sing for uh, 
different choruses or acapella groups or stuff like that rather than doing it by myself. And I like that a lot more. Okay. But I also, I, I didn't finish the theater major. I switched it out for an English major. And then that, that was the getting back into, oh, this is what I really love to do. This is the reading that I, that I want and the, the kind of writing that I can do you know, relatively easily and that I enjoy. So was that the, was that the driver of your choice to switch specifically to English? Was that you remembered what you had done in high school? Well, that and I just knew that I loved words and that okay. I loved to read and I wanted to do more of that uh, as opposed to, I mean, there's there's a reading element to studying theater, but it's a relatively minor one. Okay. So, uh, you know, I think if I have any English majors listening to this, they might be curious to know what your thought going into the major was. Like, what did you think that you would do with it once you graduated? Did you have a plan? Mm-hmm. I didn't at the time, actually. Oh, okay. and And that was... I, th- I think my plan was to do something that I enjoyed more and got more meaning out of than what I had been doing before. Okay. And so it really wasn't as future minded. No, no, okay. it wasn't. It was, it was very much, this is what I need to be doing right now. Mm. And what I will do next will take care of itself. And eventually it did. And, um, <laughs> I mean that uh, it's, um, it's interesting. A lot of the, humanities majors you don't really go into it necessarily thinking that you're going to you know have a really lucrative job or uh or or that it or even in these days that it's going to give you job security which is kind of unfortunate um you tend to go into it for actually a very similar reason that people sometimes go into the arts because it's what you love because it's Mm. what speaks to you it's what you want to do when you don't have to do anything else Right. And Mike Rowe likes to say, don't always follow your passion, but always bring it with you. Okay. So I like that. I, yeah. Yeah. I, 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 I read that recently and I, I bookmarked it. I think it's really, it's really insightful. Um, I, you can run yourself into the ground with the idea of, I'm just going to do what I'm passionate about. Come what may, blah, blah, blah. And that right. you know, it is possible. But if you, are going through the college experience and it is about an experience these days. I want to make that very clear. It's Hmm. unless you are in, you know, med school, law school, performing arts or something that you already know exactly what you're going to do after you're done. College is about the experience. And when you, when you're going through that experience, um, take your passion with you. If it doesn't, if it doesn't look like it's going to lead, you know, to a specific place, that's okay for that moment. Right. You can be in the now. You can be in the moment. You can be like, okay, this is what I love to do right now, and I'm going to do it, and I'm going to take whatever skills it can teach me that I will then apply to whatever I do next, and that's what I need to know right now, or that's what I need to do right now, and that's yeah. okay. Have you uh, have you read so good they can't ignore you by any chance? It is on my list. I, I love I, that I've book. been meaning to read that for a little while now, actually. Well, if you want to get a crash course, I interviewed Cal Newport, and uh, his episode is up now, uh, 35. Oh, great. But so what I asked him yeah, specifically, like, I was like, what would you tell somebody who wanted to know how to choose a major? Mm. And I, I was like, my, you know, my guess this is what I tell people is you can't just unearth a passion from within yourself. Like, it's not just it's not like sitting there. It comes through your experiences. Yeah. Um, so if you're just interested in something, pick that and then just go real hard on it. Mm-hmm. Like just work super hard and get as much experience as you can. And that might turn into a passion after you get good at it. But, you know, you don't you don't, might not know exactly what you want to do. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, for for people who do go into the humanities majors and the English and the performance arts and things like that, I think that those you know, those people are more likely to sort of already have identified their passion. Maybe they did it in high school or before that. And it, it feels passion to them before they get to college. And I think it sure. might be the same thing. Like you don't know exactly if it's going to turn into a career or lucrative uh, in- income situation, but <clears throat> it's something that you can work really hard on, get experience on and just see where it goes. As long as you put in the work. Yeah, absolutely. And one thing I would add to that, I think all of that is really, really relevant. Um, one thing I would add to that is whatever you do is going to give you a skill set that you can take to, you know, anything. Whether you're taking it to 
waiting tables or working in an office or being mm. a freelancer or starting a business or, you know, any, any of these other things. Um, one of the things that I, this is a little bit obvious now, but one of the things that I loved about all the English work that I did is that I, I know how to write and I know how to edit things. That's and true. That, that is really, really transferable. Yep. You know, if you, if you're going to take, uh, if you're going to take a philosophy major, you will learn how to think, you will learn how to argue, you will learn mm. how to talk about really complicated ideas in ways that make sense to whoever you're talking to. Yeah. That is that is an inherently transferable skill. If you're going to study um, history or even, you know, more uh, niching down further, something like art history, you will understand, you, you will get this incredible understanding of our culture and how... Uh, a window onto different societies and, you know, how civilization has formed and all sorts of stuff like that, that, that you can bring that perspective to bear on almost anything. Yeah. And this is something I'm realizing is, you know, as I get older, that innovation and value is created at the intersection of different fields. So sure. if you have something like art history, or if you have something like performance arts or something, uh, that can be integrated into business or, or science or something else. And you can make something really, really valuable. Uh, oh, yeah. Like Michael Port, he's the guy that wrote Book Yourself Solid. He's like this very, very uh, well-known figure. <laughs> he's, yeah, um, very well-known figure in the business world. He actually went to school for acting. Uh, I nice. think at Yale, I want to say, or NYU, either one. Uh, sure. It's one of, the, one of the two. But, he, you know, he's combined his acting talent, the public speaking arena with, uh, with like business and freelancing and building a business. And he's made something really, really good out of it. Mm-hmm. So if you're yeah. in a major like that, you can create something at the intersection of that and another field. Exactly. That's actually what a lot of my classmates in my arts management graduate degree are, are learning to do or are currently doing. You know, they're, they're working for nonprofits. They're working for uh, museums, performing arts organizations, symphonies, stuff like that. But they're working in marketing. They're working in mm. fundraising. They're working in operations management. Um, all of the, they're working in event planning. You know, all of these things that... Um, that, that, that are business needs, but that are done in this, this artistic, uh, context. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, people, st- uh, they still see like a, a huge divide between the arts and business. Uh, I see business as it's, you know, the process of value creation and spreading that value, uh, mm-hmm. you know, profiting off of it. And the arts are very similar. You know, you're making something of value, something that people like, and if you can combine that with business, then you can make it more efficient or you can make a different delivery mechanism or all kinds of different things. Oh, yeah. And there's, um, again, this this didn't end up being the career path I stayed with, but there's so much you can do with, you know, studying things like audience data or, mm. or, or, or demographics or there's anything data related. There's so much data that you can work with. Some of my <laughs> classmates were like huge, huge data heads. So I'm like, I'm gonna be over here writing stuff. But, uh, <laughs> but anyway, and that was fine. But um, it, it, yeah, that's exactly how this could work. Mm-hmm. I think if I, I, if I went back to school, I would go back for statistics. Just because I think being able to analyze data is just such a useful skill. And it's so fascinating to see trends and things like that. So, uh, so you did English and you graduated, but you went to grad school immediately after, is that? No, I took three years off. Oh, you took three years off. Okay. Was that to, uh, work That was somewhere? to figure out what the heck I wanted to do next. <laughs> okay. And I mean, in, in, in the, the cliche that everybody does, I lived in my parents' basement for three okay. years and, um, it, it was, it was slightly better lit than where I am right now, but not by much. Um, <laughs> and, um uh, you know, I worked, uh, I worked at a bagel shop for a while mm. and I worked in a few arts management, like entry level jobs. I worked in a few different box offices, selling tickets to things. Uh, I interned at a couple different, at a, at a circus and at a symphony and at a couple different theaters and just kind of getting my, getting my feet wet in as many different arts management areas as I could, because that seemed like an, uh, a logical next step at the time. And I knew I didn't want to just work in a bagel shop the rest of my life. Right. Um, but at that point, I felt that going to graduate school would be a really good step for me um, just to get um, more academic experience in the field. Um, I think I felt a little bit more comfortable with the idea of having that experience be academic and like like scholastic internships rather than just trying to work my way up the ladder at, a, at mm. an arts organization in town. Okay. 
So, and then graduate school is at Carnegie Mellon, right? Yes. Okay. And was that continuing with English? Was it something specific? Uh, that was that was arts management. Oh, that that's was, right. That's right. No, that's fine. Uh, it was a, a arts management um, master's degree. So, you know, that you had classes on marketing. You had classes on various different kinds of fundraising, including grant writing, which I which I gravitated to. Um, uh, planning a performance season or how like law and the arts work together. And, you know, there's, there's lots of different things that you learn in this kind of thing. And some of them are quite fascinating. Mm. Um, I also did a number of internships at arts organizations while I was there. I interned at a couple different opera companies. Uh, I was a singer, so I wanted to get where the vocal music was. Um, and I actually, during the summer between the, uh, first and second year, I interned at an opera festival in upstate New York, and I ended up writing all of their grants while I was there. Really? Which was which was really neat, because like, everything else we were doing was basically like uh, patron or prospect research, yeah. which, which is time-consuming and not as fun as writing things for me. But, um, but I, they were just like, oh, you're a good writer. Here, here <laughs> to do this. And I, was, and I had just gotten done with my, my grant writing class. So they were like, hey, do you know how to do this? And I was like, actually, yes. So, <laughs> <laughs> so if you're putting together an opera festival, who do you ask for money? Um, other than everyone. Um, <laughs> so you're going to have um, – you're going to have patrons who – uh, who have been coming for a long time and, okay. and they will be some of your major donors. They may be, some of them will be your board members, people who make significant financial donations on a regular basis. And then you'll have people who come less regularly, but buy expensive tickets. So you, mm-hmm. you sort of feel them out and you're like, Oh, so you've been, you, you've come a couple times. What do you think? You know, is this something you'd be interested in supporting uh, at a different level and, and, and so forth. Uh, and then, you know, you have individual donations of all kinds, like that you don't necessarily pitch them personally, but you know, you'll have a direct mail thing or an email thing or an insert in the program or whatever. And, you know, hundreds or thousands of people will give you from between like one and a couple thousand dollars. And, okay. you know, that, that's sort of your, your annual fund, your expenses for the year. Mm-hmm. Then you'll also have, uh, foundations, uh, private foundations or state foundations, state funding, federal funding, local funding that you will approach, uh, and, and, and write proposals for. That's what I did. Um, as, as, you write them a grant proposal saying, hey, we're doing this project. We'd like you to support it in this way, and this is what it's going to do. And if they give you the money, then you write about what you did and, <laughs> and how that worked out. And then sometimes you also can get corporate sponsorships or you can work with um, – Local businesses will sometimes want, you know, they'll buy advertising in your program or they'll sponsor an event or they'll, they'll, mm. they'll give money to a particular project. Uh, and then also you'll have fundraising events, like you'll have a big gala once or twice a year or you'll have like an auction or, you know, or a big concert or something like that that, that brings in extra money around that. Okay, so it's mainly uh, like patrons of the arts pretty much. Mm-hmm. But yeah. then you can also get some outside business. Mm-hmm. It's cool. It's interesting. I, I guess I had never like thought about where – funding comes for, you know, uh, I guess events like that, that are not like business oriented. And, and I mean, you have ticket sales also, but normally there's, uh, there's, there's a a balance between, you know, ticket sales and fundraising and, uh, you want the balance to be fairly even, but most times it isn't most times. In fact, in these days, most times you rely a lot more on fundraising than on ticket sales. Gotcha. You know, I wonder with like grant writing background, if people are going to start like pitching you on uh, like writing Kickstarter pages or something like that. Because that's where a lot of the money's being asked for these days. Oh yeah, well, Kickstarter is a really neat thing because you can basically test whether something is going to sell or not before you even make it or before you put it together, um, yeah. which is kind of fun. You and you can engage a bunch of pre-sales for something, which is also a lot of fun. Um, it's very interesting. Kickstarter is a little bit of a cross between like a grant proposal and like a sales copy sort of landing page. Mm. And I haven't, I haven't done as much with sales copy. Like I've done a little bit. I know there are, I could, I could recommend half a dozen people who are better at sales copy than I am. Okay. It's a little bit of sort of knowing my niche. Like right. I am, I, I had a conversation with one of my friends who's a sale, who's a copywriter. And I was saying, well, but, you know, I've looked at this particular landing page and there are so many grammatical errors on it where this is a big problem. And he's like, no, that's not a problem at all. We don't care about the grammar. We care if the, if the page converts. Hmm. And I was like, 
I was like, that, that I can't think like that. <laughs> like, I was like, that page will not convert for me. And he's right. like, okay, that's fine. It'll convert for a whole bunch of other people. And I'm like, all right. I mean, if that's, yeah. if that's what's important for sales copy, then that's what's important for sales copy. But if you're writing an ebook where mm. you are trying to get yourself business, come across as really credible, get your message to the people who want to hear it, and basically have a, a masterpiece of writing that defines who you are, what you do, and why you're awesome at it, and it's riddled with spelling and grammar errors, nobody's going to take you seriously. Yeah. So that's, what, that's, why, that's why I do the editing and the writing that I do is for <laughs> you. <laughs> you know, it's funny. Uh, often in the, the initial stages of publishing, it's the business that it takes the forefront. Um, I was listening to Jenny Blake's – she has like an informal podcast on SoundCloud – and mm-hmm. she did a little podcast on her experience getting her publishing deal for her first book. Right. And she's talking about these meetings she went to with the publishing agents and there would be all these people there. And uh, they never once asked for like a writing sample or like, oh, how good of a writer are you? It was all about the potential market, like how mm-hmm. we're going to sell the book, how we're going to uh, you know, get the word out, that kind of thing. Like you yeah. already have a platform. So it's interesting, like because I'm somebody I'm going to be looking into publishing uh, traditionally soon right. and hearing this like, oh, I don't just walk in with my beautifully written prose and prove to them how good of a writer I am. No, I need to show them yeah. that I have a platform and I can I can like make it a good investment for them to mm-hmm. uh, invest in the yeah. project. No, I and and I think actually well, I, have, I have two things to say about that. Uh, firstly, I think that's a really good summation of why traditional publishing and self-publishing work so differently. Mm. Um, because uh, let, let me come back to that. But there, so that, but also <laughs> um, the, uh, one of the I, I recently worked at a TEDx event. Uh, I, I coach speakers for TEDx events as well. Um, and one of the speakers I worked with is a guy named Seth Adam Smith, and he recently wrote this article called "Marriage Isn't for You," um, that went viral. And you may uh, have read that. Yeah, he is, um, and he got. Uh, he ended up now. He's getting a book deal out of it, and I'm hopefully going to edit something for him. We're working that out. But okay. um, he uh, he was a he was a great speaker to work with. Um, but his talk at this TEDx event, TEDx Sarasota, was all about how books don't create movements, movements create books. Mm. And one of the reasons that things are working out so well for him is that before he even wrote the article on how marriage isn't for you, he had, excuse me, he had created this movement of just people supporting each other through different life uh, um, trials and so forth and comparing notes on different, different issues like that one. So when he wrote that article and when people started you know, talking to him about getting a book deal, his his platform, his movement was already in place. So that so the conversation that Jenny was talking about having, and that you may you will be talking about having with your um, your potential publishers, it, he was already ready for him. He was like, oh yeah, I have all of these people who are going to promote my book for me, right? Because because when he you know when he was younger, he worked at a couple of publishing agencies, and everyone who who submitted like a a, a manuscript would say, "If you only publish this book, then I will do these nine hundred things to promote it." Right. And the publisher was basically saying, "Well, no, we don't want to do that. We want all these nine hundred things to be in place first, yep. and then we'll have a reason to publish the book." Yeah, so that that's what I want to work on with my mm-hmm. potential project and listening sure. to people who email in, and, and I think building the platform is a good thing in advance and. Um, Jenny's got that for her second book, which is awesome. So <laughs> she's been talking oh, yeah. about this uh, this pivot idea for so long that now it's just like there's a ton of people that want to know about it. So yeah. <laughs> that's how it works. It's interesting, like the the world of publishing works so much differently than most people think. Uh, that they don't know anything, which is much like anything else. Uh, you get mm-hmm. second order incompetence. What you don't know that you don't know, that yep. kind of thing. So let's talk about this uh, location independent lifestyle. Because okay. I didn't even know that you were location independent when I met you at uh, Camp Nerd Fitness. I was just like, "Oh, hey, this is James." And then yeah. I talked to you. And said, oh, yeah, I don't actually live anywhere. You know, I just, <laughs> yeah, I, I just go wherever I want. You know. So, uh, what were the like? What were the steps that got you to this lifestyle, and why did you want to do it? And what were some like difficulties at the start? Okay, so I'm going to take us back to spring of or March of 2012 when I worked at my very first TEDx event. Uh, this was, this was at Carnegie Mellon as TEDx CMU, uh, 2012. And one of the speakers was Sean Ogle. 
who oh, runs cool. Location Rebel, Location 180. He's one of the people who helps put on uh, uh, World Domination Summit and, and so forth. And his talk was called The Future of the American Dream. And it was all about being location independent. Hmm. You know, how he had quit his job. Uh, he had worked in a corporate job for a while and got, got really, really sick of it. And, and, you know, quit, moved to Thailand, built up his SEO business, and then decided to start teaching people how to be location independent. And I'm sitting in the audience. I didn't coach him. I coached a couple of the other speakers. But I'm sitting in the audience. I'm listening to this and I'm going... I want to do that. <laughs> and uh, incidentally, that was um, Mike Rostoski and Jenny Blake and Nikki Hajal were all there. So I got to meet them as well, which was really fun. But, um, but just listening to this talk by, by Sean, I was like, this is what I want to do. So I go on through the rest of graduate school. I do my internship at the opera company. I do second year. I do, I get a job, you know, at an opera company when I'm done as a grant writer. But in the back of my head, I'm still going, but I really want to do that. Mm. And um, as I was doing my first grant writing job, I was like, okay, you know, I'll do this for a couple of years, maybe two, three years, whatever. And then I'll find a way to take my my business on the road or be location independent or, or do you know, freelance grant writing or whatever, what it was going to be. And then I lost the job. Mm. And so that was end of March of this year. So six, seven months ago, something like that, eight months ago ish. And, um, I, that wasn't fun. You know, losing a job is never fun, but at some level I realized my timetable had just moved up. Mm. If I wanted to be location independent, I could do it now. So I, I did a few different things to, to start preparing for that. I, I tried doing a few different freelance writing things because the barrier to entry into that is really low. Right. And uh, that's actually uh, in, the, in the Location Rebel community that Sean runs. There are blueprints on like how to do these different things, and freelance writing is one of them. Um, so I, I did some work with that and I, I started doing some of that. I went to, I went to Mike Rostoski's conference for men, uh, in San Diego and there I met a bunch of entrepreneurial men, some of whom are location independent, like I wanted to be. And I was like, oh wow, here are people doing what I want to do. Who have some of the same values that I have. And like, I formed a men's group with some of them and some of the other ones I like talk to fairly regularly. So just from that one conference, I completely changed like the people that are around me. And, you know, you're the average of all the people that are around you. So that like spun my life in a whole different direction. <laughs> and, then, and then I figured like in talking to one of them, I, it was, uh, I made the decision in the middle of May that once my lease was up, I was going to get in my car and start driving and see what happens. And then I went to World Domination Summit, and that was when I like started talking publicly about this is what I was going to do, and I got a lot of really great support from there. And then, uh, so on July 31st, when my lease ended, I got in my car and I started driving, and I <laughs> I visited various friends all over Florida. I did a loop up into the South, um, so I could you know friends in South Carolina and Tennessee and, and Georgia, and then when I went to Camp Nerd Fitness, and I actually went back down to Sarasota to work my last TEDx event, and now I'm in I'm in I'm near Gainesville, okay. um, in sort of north north central Florida, and in the next week or so, I'm going to start heading north again. All so right. yeah, so you're not in a Ford country, you're not in Southeast Asia, so it's not like a I'm not so. You can't like get a super cheap hostel every night. Do you like get Airbnb, Airbnb rentals, or you like couch surf, or how does that work uh, for I lodging? Couch surf. I've couch surfed three or four times so far. I also stay with friends whenever okay. I can, and I've moved a lot and I've been around the country a lot, so I have a number of friends, you know, all over the place, which has helped a lot. I I basically have a lodging budget of zero. Okay. So, uh, so I have to either stay with friends or couch surf and, and like that. Um, one of my friends, uh, from location rebel, a gentleman named Carlo Crataro, um, he and his girlfriend have been traveling all over the world. They're currently in South America. Um, they have a freelance writing business of their own and he just wrote a book called the next stop who knows guide to getting free hotel stays from your travel blog. Huh. So, and I do have a blog, I need to do some more work on it, but <laughs> I'm thinking about doing some more of that in the future in new cities that I visit being like, okay, I, I am, and I write for people who do work and travel at the same time and want to stay somewhere for like maybe a week at a time, as opposed to like a day or two. 
um, you know, I can give maybe extended stay hotels or, or hotels that do a lot of business travel, like reviews in that for that audience and they give me free stays instead. So I'm looking at yeah. doing more of that going forward as well. You could also pitch maybe like uh, like helping them out with copy or marketing or something too. That kind possibly, of thing. possibly. Be an interesting uh, opportunity. Cool. So uh, and the, so you've been doing this for what three months now? Three months. Three months. Three months and a couple of days. Man, it's uh, it's cool to just like think about just getting in your car and driving. You know, sometimes I, I, I want to do it's it. It's fun. I think the big thing, like I've got friends here and I've got a girlfriend who's still in college, but mm-hmm. other than that, like you know, I would I would do it. And I, I really wanted to do it um, a couple of years ago. I think I, I have more of like a connection to my home than I used to, mm. but it's still like in the back of my mind. Like, oh God, I wish I could do it. And it's it's interesting because I've had people who have given me that reaction and I've had people who have given me the there's no way I could ever do it reaction. And mm. I mean, that's fine. I mean, it's it's really an individual thing, but all you really have to do is you have to be okay with a certain amount of uncertainty. Right. Because, you know, I don't always know where I'm going to stay next or how I'm going to afford everything. And I have to be okay with dealing with that. And you have to be willing to give up whatever it is that's holding you in one place. And some people, that's uh, a full time job or a house or a relationship or kids or um, just being really comfortable or whatever. And, you know, sometimes it's not the right time to give up those things. And that's okay. But sometimes it is. Sometimes it's like, you know what, I've been doing this thing or being in this place long enough and I need to, I need to do something different and this is what it's going to be. Yeah. You want to avoid uh, stagnation, you know, Mm -hmm. Absolutely. makes a lot of sense, man. So I I would be interested to see how things are going like three months from now. Yeah. And I'll definitely, they're going, it's interesting. They're going, I I think I'm going to look back and say how the first three months were the hardest. Um, (laughs) things are starting to, things are starting to pick up and roll a lot better now than they were a month ago or a month before that. So yeah, you always got to be scrappy in the beginning. So exactly. That's how it starts out. But then you start like missing the scrappy days afterwards. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, you know, that's super interesting and I definitely want to get some updates whenever, um, you're a little more established. Sure. But to round this podcast out, since you're an English major, I want to yeah. unlock the secret paper writing techniques oh, of goodness. the uh. Uh, grad educated or grad school educated English major, um, just in case, you know, <laughs> students are wondering, like, oh, how do I do better research or how do I outline better? So uh, do you have any, like, tips that are stuck out in your head on how to write better research papers and essays? Uh, I have a few. Okay. Um, one, so I'm going to tell I'm going to talk about a bad habit that I had that I think will, will turn into a better habit if you don't do it. Um, okay. <laughs> so what I always used to do, especially when I was younger was just sit down and start writing. Mm. And, um, there were times at which I was able to get away with that. And there were times in which I very much wasn't. Um, now you don't necessarily have to have the like, five paragraph each paragraph has a topic sentence and a concluding sentence outline that you know that was what i learned in eighth and ninth grade you don't necessarily have to have that but taking the time to put an outline together before you start writing will save you a lot of time on the back end right um one of my friends actually who who runs a self-publishing business has this idea that i've been doing a lot of work with recently around like proposals i've written and other things where the first thing that you do you get a blank piece of paper and you write the topic of your paper in the middle of it. Mm. And then you mind map everything you can possibly think of about that topic. Uh, Every source you can think of, every idea that possibly comes to mind, you don't, it doesn't have to be organized. It doesn't have to be pretty. Just write everything you can possibly think of in like half an hour and then leave the paper alone for like a couple hours, go do something else and then come back to it and just add everything that you think of in the meantime. Okay. And then, so once you have this mind map, um, you can you can take as much time or as little time as you need or as you have. But once you have this mind map, you can then either take each concept on it and put them onto like index cards, or you can like start an outline based on the on the mind map itself on just like a nor another piece of paper, and then you can start putting your ideas in order. Yeah. And that will give you a sense of what you want to do first and last, and and what's most important and least important, which is great. It'll also give you a sense of what areas you might want to flesh out a little bit more or where there's research that you could do more of, or if there's something that came up that you're like, I don't really know a lot about this, but I think it might be important. So go find another source on it kind of thing. Okay. Um, 
And then you can put together a preliminary outline based on that and then take some time to flesh it out if you need to or if you have the extra time. And then once the outline is created and you've made, you can make sub notes on it, you can make it as detailed as you want. So then when you sit down to write, you are like, oh, so this is the first point that I'm going to make. And these are the five things that I want to make sure get said about it. Mm-hmm. And then maybe the fourth of those five things isn't as important. So I'm going to cut it and focus on the other four. And suddenly you have like half your own momentum is already there, but it's also already organized. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So what I do for blog posts a lot is, you know, after I do my brain dump and everything, which that's what I call it. I call it the brain dump. Just yeah. There dump you go. Everything out there. And mind maps a good technique for it, or you can just, just write anywhere. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Free um, writing is great for that too. Yeah. And I think another good thing to do is, uh, you know, you free write or you, you brain dump in any way possible. Um, and this is what I'm writing in the little grade book that I'm, I'm developing over the next couple of weeks is like, after that, you get your focus and make some key questions. That way, when questions you go research, you know what good. you're looking for. Like, have you ever, have you ever, uh, closed your eyes and thought really hard about a color and then like looked around and it immediately like pops out to you? Yeah. 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 That, yeah. I've done that. <laughs> so if I'm like, if I, Oh, point out everything to me that's red around you. If you, if you first close your eyes and you think about red really hard, then it'll pop out to you. Um, mm-hmm. and I think it's the same with research. Like if you sit down and deliberately think out some questions and then when mm-hmm. you do research, you're going to be like, Oh yeah, there, I was wondering about that. And yep. it'll pop out to you. So yeah, I really like that. What I do with blog posts. Questions are, questions are great too, because then you automatically have a prompt that you're like, Oh, so this is a question I can go answer and you don't have to think about. So what's the point I want to make? So yeah. Yeah. And with, uh, so with blog posts, like you said, you get that outline, what I'll do. And when I start writing the actual post is I'll take my outline headings and I'll like write them all down. And then like underneath each one, I'll put blah, just like the word blah (laughs) or the word content or something. So it's like the structure, like the skeleton is there. And then I just, I just write from there from Absolutely. at least so I know where I'm going into with each section. Yeah. So that, so no, that's awesome. Those are all really great things to do. Like when you're getting started and as you're trying to get the, the momentum going on your writing mm-hmm. and then, um, during the writing process, um, do the best, this, this isn't always feasible, especially in college, but do your best to separate your writing and non-writing time. Like mm-hmm. if you're going to write for an hour, write for an hour. Okay. Don't do six other things while you're trying to write. And then if you want to take a break, take a break. Like go watch a movie, go on Facebook, go for a walk, whatever it is you're going to do. Um, don't don't feel like you should be writing when you are, are specifically taking a break, but don't let yourself take a break when you specifically should be writing, if that makes sense. Right. Um, I have a – who said this? It might have been Phil Drolet who said um, – who, who talked about this in terms of black and white – you know, when you when you need to be in the black, be in the black with a nod to Firefly. If you need to be in the white, be in the white. Mm. And it, the problem really comes when you find yourself in, in the gray. And the gray is when either you should be working, but you're not, or you should be think, taking a break, but you're thinking about work. That's like, interesting. And, yeah. And striate them as much as you can. You it know, makes in, sense. <laughs> Leo Babakta said, in uh, be present. You have. Yeah, I think. Exactly. And it, 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 that makes sense. Like when you're doing something, do that. Exactly. Or, or the, the, what was the Ron Swanson quote? Don't don't half-ass two things, whole-ass one thing. Whole-ass one thing. <laughs> yep. <laughs> <laughs> well, there, I was talking to my friend Bud today, and there's a, there's a quote from the book Rework. And I think it was something like, uh, oh, actually, I have it on my computer right now. I'll just look okay. at it. Uh, yeah. you're better with a kick-ass half and a half-assed hole. So kind of the same yep. thing. Yeah, um, exactly. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Anyway, it's and funny because I wrote this article about like how black and white thinking is a terrible idea, but black and white working, that's a good idea. Yeah. No, it, it's, it's, it's a different, different, different take on it. I like that. Mm. So, so you have, that's my, my main advice for the actual writing process. And then once you've, once you've written, once you're done with, you know, whatever, um, be okay with that being a first draft. I mean, if you if it's due in five minutes and you just have to turn it in, fine. I mean, I've written right. papers at the last minute before. Sometimes just like, okay, good enough, done. But <laughs> if you have, a, you know, budget in if you can, even an hour or something like that to to turn your first draft into a second draft. I mean, right. obviously things like spell check are important and, and like everybody knows that. But like make sure that you're using the right word. Like, and sometimes that can be a typo. Like you're trying to write quite and instead you write quiet that completely changes your sentence, but yeah. you might not have even known that it happened if you didn't look for it. Yep. Um, 
uh, you know, check, check for, you know, make sure your transitions are good. And one thing that actually really helps for something like this is to read it out loud. Yes. I was about to and, say that. <laughs> oh, good. Oh, good. I'm glad. <laughs> yeah. So, I, yeah, I do that with like, uh, I don't do it with blog posts, but I do it with things that are like really important. I think mm-hmm. like, uh, I don't know, like, I guess I'm doing like a, a speaking sheet that I'm going to be sending out. Like, I'm definitely going to read that out loud before I. Oh, absolutely. Because I mean, so much of so much of writing is literally speech put onto a page. Mm -hmm. And sometimes there can be an argument that you want it to be more formal or or whatever, which, you know, is fine. But when you read something out loud, you get a really good sense for its tone. You get a really good sense for its flow. And if something is egregiously wrong, it will probably jump out at you. Right. Um, (laughs) Yeah. And you miss it when you when you scan with your eyes. You know. Oh, yeah. Especially since you've already been looking at it for yep. like hours. <laughs> so, you know, if you can uh, build in the time for this when you're when you're you're planning the project, try and finish it like a day early yep. and then don't look at it for a few hours. Like go for a walk or go do something unrelated yeah. to that and then come back and read it out loud. And you will find probably, you know, 80 percent of the, the, the serious issues that are there. Mm-hmm. If you have an opportunity to work with somebody else, I mean, these are college students. I'm not necessarily saying that you need to hire someone to edit your papers because one, you might not have time and two, you might be broke because right. I certainly was. Um, <laughs> but, you know, if you if you're if your roommate is willing to look it over, take advantage of that. Yeah. And, you know, buy, you know, buy him, a, buy him a drink later or something. I mean, that's um, <laughs> if you have someone else who's willing to help you, let them help you. And that that that's something that speaks to the benefit of making friends in class. Because oh, if sure. you do that, then you can have a study group, or you can have yeah. somebody that you can peer review them, and vice versa. And frankly, if you're that person, enjoy being that person. I mean, mm-hmm. obviously, you, if you need your own space, you need your own space. That's fine. Don't be a doormat. But you know, enjoy being the person who helps out his class, his or her classmates, and yep. be like, "Hey, dude, let me take a look at that for you. Let me make sure that's awesome." Because that's the kind of karma, frankly, that's going to come back to you and they're going to be like, hey, this is a really cool person. I'll help them out. Yep. Yeah, definitely. Um, I guess one last thing I would say is something that uh, Cal Newport said in his book on getting straight A's. And I hear from every writer ever, which is just write consistently, like get up mm-hmm. every morning and do this many words. So if you have a paper and you know it needs to be 2000 words or something and it's due in two weeks, we'll get up every morning and write like at least 150 words on it or 200. Just make sure, sure you're working constantly through the process. That way you're not like, oh, no, it's due the next day. I'm just going to write the whole mm-hmm. thing. And then I don't have time to edit and do the vocal pass and have somebody yep. look over it and things like that. Yep. And and that, that's that's a really great piece of advice. I know that can sometimes be difficult when either A, the assignment is really far away mm-hmm. or and you have other things to do ahead of time or B, it's not something that may necessarily lend itself to daily writing. Like if you're right. journaling or blogging, then that's something that you want to do every day or at least have a regular practice. With a paper, it might be um, more difficult to fit that in. But th- I heard yeah. a story once that I really liked um, – this is so, so you guys in college will hear at some point about writing a thesis or a dissertation, uh, which is basically the gigantic mother of all papers. And um, it's, you know, could be over 100 pages long. Sometimes they're even more than that. I mean, it's just they're, they're gigantic. People in higher levels of academia spend years writing a dissertation. But the story was basically how a lot of the people who spend years writing a dissertation spend more time uh, waiting to get started writing it than they do actually writing it. Right. So there was a guy, and I don't remember who this guy was, but I really admire him. (laughs) He made a commitment that every day while he was writing his dissertation, he would write one sentence. And he wouldn't make himself write any more than that if he didn't feel like it. But he would write it even if he had to write it at four in the morning after he got back from a party and he was, you know, ready to go to sleep. Right. He would write one sentence. That guy finished his dissertation in under a year. Wow. And a lot of his classmates were still, you know, going and still figuring out, like, how they were going to finish it, like, two and three and four years down the line. Yeah. Yeah. So if you have a paper that's due in three weeks, write one sentence on it every day. Exactly. And, and, you know, if, if you're, if you are inspired to write something more than that one sentence, great. Yeah. Well, I think, uh, so this episode won't be out until I think January, but as we're we're recording this, it's Monday or not Monday, November. 
is November is what I wanted to yeah. say. <laughs> and, you know, we're, we're like getting into National Novel Writing Month. Oh, that's Everyone's true. trying to write so many words a day. I'm actually taking part in a challenge by uh, that was started by Jenny Blake, which is National Blogging Month or something like that. Oh, but that's right. Yeah, I remember. Her challenge I, I, is 50,000 words in the month of November. I'm dedicating most of those words to the book I'm writing, but some will be for blog posts and other things. And, you know, you're right. This is the dedicated habits, like dedicated daily mm-hmm. effort trumps yeah. uh, like what somebody told me. Um, I think I interviewed a girl named Brit. She's an author for like a podcast on episode 31 and she was like dedicated daily effort of like 500 words will always be like massive. Let's just try to write the whole book in a weekend kind of things Mm -hmm. because you often don't get to those massive efforts, you know, very rarely does somebody actually go and do that. Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. It's the, the tortoise and the hare uh, (laughs) principle. (laughs) Yep. Awesome. Well, Hey, I think this is a, this is a pretty good place to wrap up. Um, well, then. Your tips on writing papers are awesome. I'm sure a lot of people are going to get value out of that. And also your story is just really fascinating. And I Thank will you. be interested to see what things are looking like down the road. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'd if people be happy to circle back with you again at some point. Yeah. So if people want to connect with you, like you have social profiles or a website they can sure. go to. So, yeah. So um, I am my website. is So I'm James Ranson and my right. website, my blog is held for dot com. Uh, so You're it's like clever. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it, it's it, it, it's it, held for ransom only with an N. Yeah. Um, and I'm also held for ransom on Twitter. Okay. Uh, I will shortly be launching uh, a professional services website called uh, badassbookeditor.com. Cool. As well. Awesome. Well, hey, if anyone wants to connect with uh, James, just go to those sites and I'll have them linked up in the show notes as well. Thanks for being on the show, dude. Thanks for having me. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah, man. And I, I hope I, I hope I gave some good value to all you people listening. And, and I'd love to talk to you if you want to get or want to reach out to me. For sure. All right. All right. Well, I hope you enjoyed this interview with James and learned something cool. Once again, if you've got questions about college, if you've got questions about editing papers, you can connect with him on Twitter over at held for ransom on Twitter or his website held for dot com. If you've got questions about anything else, I'm an open book. Send them over to Thomas at college dot com. We'll get those answered on our Q&A episodes. If you want to get the resources that I use to do better work and other resources you can use to be an awesome student, head over to collegeinvogeek.com slash resources. And once again, you can subscribe to this show via the show notes, which are at sigpodcast.com and leave a review if you really like the show. That really helps out. So until then, coming up next week, we have that Q&A episode. So uh, stick around for that. And until then, stay cute. Thanks for listening to the College Info Geek Podcast grow your brain even more at www.collegeinfogeek.com.